listening to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. Each episode, we look at the topics that can make our working lives difficult and explore how you can take action to improve things. We want to help you move from simply surviving work to thriving at work. My Pocket Psych is brought to you by Work Life Psych, a team of workplace psychologists who are experts in coaching, training, and structured development programs. You can find out more about how we help people grow and develop at work by visiting our website, worklifepsych.com. Hello and welcome to episode number 47 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Richard McKinnon and I'm joined by my co-host Pilar Orti. Hi Pilar and how are you? I am very well and delighted to join you again. <laughs> <laughs> now is that true? What, that I'm delighted or that I'm joining yeah. you Yeah, well, that you're delighted because I don't know, it depends on how you deliver that message, right? No, I am very delighted to to <laughs> be back two episodes in a row. I can't believe it. So yeah, that's good. Hello, listeners. <laughs> So we've got quite a lot to cover uh, in this episode, but you know we're, we're talking today mostly about um, the tools that we use at work, whether they be analog, pen and paper, or more digital approaches. And so we've got a few pieces of evidence, a few research studies, a few of our own observations, and lots and lots of feedback from people on Twitter when PLR posed this question. It's really interesting to see that. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, the, uh, people get very excited when they talk about uh, tools and how they do the work. And I really like that there was a lot of um, thought behind it. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you pose the question, people reflect and say, oh, actually, yeah, I do prefer to use this. So we'll talk about the difference between preference and benefits a little bit later on. But as ever, let's start with uh, with our news and updates. So in work-life psych news, I just want to say a personal thank you to everyone who responded to my post on LinkedIn. Um, as per our last episode, I, I just shared online that it was our fifth birthday in September 2019 and shared a blog post about my own thoughts on that and got a lot of nice feedback from from uh, clients and colleagues and, and various people so that was that was quite nice that melted my my cold icy heart oh. it was lovely <laughs> lovely to see that so thank you for that and um on a related note, uh, I'll reiterate that uh, any solutions or services that clients confirm in September 2019 to celebrate this fifth birthday will come with a 5% discount. So if you've been considering introducing Coach on Campus, or if you are thinking about the development needs of your teams, or if you as an individual are interested in getting some coaching for a uh, something you're working on to do at the workplace, uh, September is the month to secure that 5% discount. So just get in touch via worklifepsych.com slash contact and you can send us a message there and I'll be able to respond to you via email with any questions that, that you might have. And we're also really, really rapidly approaching our 50th episode. So another milestone. This is number 47. So it's <laughs> it's kind of around the corner. So listeners, uh, we know you're there. We know you're listening. We'd love to hear from you. Over the last 
40 something episodes? What's resonated with you? What have you found useful? What have you put into practice or how has it benefited you? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, either send us a short tweet at my pocket psych or, or send us a message via the contact form that I just referenced. If you'd like to share something a little bit longer with us, how have these episodes made any difference in your understanding of the psychology of the workplace or in your own productivity or your well-being or any of the topics that we've covered, either Pilar and I or with any of our guests who've added real value over the last while. So let us know. We'd love to hear and we'll feature that feedback on our special 50th episode. So in terms of well-being news, you know what, we're never short of uh, well-being topics hitting the press. Um, and, and so it's often a a bit difficult to choose what we're what we're going to share, but it really depends on what you mean by by well being. <laughs> but there was an article that caught my eye uh, from last month in the Guardian in in online, and they've got this ongoing series, uh, the one change that worked, and it's personal reflections on a change people have made in their lives that they believe has had a real impact on them. And the one that caught my eye was. Uh, the, the writer, Jack Summers, talking about the improvements uh, to his life when he stopped keeping his mobile phone by his bed. And, you know, given what we've been discussing over previous episodes, I thought this was really interesting because the change was that, uh, I think it was his sister, bought him um, an alarm clock to put by his bed rather than his phone because he talked about being up in the middle of the night looking at Instagram and other social media feeds and a lot of FOMO, you know, <laughs> fear of missing out and this cycle of, well, I'm awake, so I'll have a look, which means I'm awake longer. And he even shared that he was using caffeine tablets during the day to keep going because he was spending so much time awake at night on his mobile phone. And again, you know, this isn't something that's going to work for everyone. And I don't think everyone's in the same position as him when, you know, the need for caffeine tablets during the day. But it was an interesting little story from my perspective that such a small change, putting a bit of distance between you and this device could have a big impact on your well-being by giving you longer and better quality sleep. Mm -hmm. I mean, the headline is my life became immeasurably better when I stopped keeping <laughs> yeah, my I phone know. by my bed. So, yeah, it's very it's very interesting. Um, the photo is of a horrible alarm clock, though. <laughs> I think, why didn't he go for a radio <laughs> alarm clock? <laughs> Wake up to Well, there's lots of different ways of doing that. But, I mean, I think, you know, even if you're not being interrupted by the phone, the fact that it's there means that if you do wake up, the temptation is there to dive into it and feel that maybe, oh, I could be productive now that it's three in the morning. I could try and do something rather than relaxing and, and maybe going back to sleep. And, you know, this isn't the first time I've encountered people talking about this. So many of us use our mobile phones as our alarm clock that they become intertwined because this device can do so many things. We use it for so many things and therefore the double-edged sword kicks in. It is something that could negatively impact our sleep. It's interesting that it was someone who noticed this, someone else mm. who said, look, mm. <laughs> have you noticed this issue? Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, if you try that, if you feel that your phone is interrupting your sleep, or if you have done this already, if you keep your phone out of the bedroom for whatever reason, we'd love to hear from you um, to see uh, what kind of a difference that it's it's making for you. And, and on a kind of related note, uh, I came across uh, a, a nice article, um, full 
academic article because so much of this stuff is behind a paywall and I'm conscious that so many of our listeners do not want to register and pay for for an article. They're not even sure if it's going to be good for them. But uh, this is, uh, I'll give you the full title, The Efficacy of App-Supported Smartphone Interventions for Mental Health Problems, a Meta-Analysis of Randomized Control Trials. So this is uh, a meta-analysis, an amalgamation of existing studies, and they were randomized control trials. So if you remember from our previous discussions about what good evidence looks like in uh, in research, you know, th- these are what we would be aiming for, the gold standard, the randomized control trials when people are involved in them and they're not quite sure what role they're playing, whether they're the control or the experimental group, for example. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting, this article looks at uh, how smartphone interventions, the use of apps and and other ways of, of supporting um, people getting support for mental health conditions, how the smartphone interventions are outperforming the control conditions across a number of challenges. So I just want to quote from this to, to illustrate it. Smartphone interventions significantly outperformed control conditions in improving depressive and generalized anxiety symptoms, stress levels, quality of life, general psychiatric distress, social anxiety symptoms, and positive affect, with most effects being robust even after adjusting for various possible biasing factors. So we have one story where the smartphone was making life a bit more difficult. Here we've got an example where apps designed for smartphones can support or boost interventions when it comes to helping people with mental health conditions. And I thought that was just a nice contrast. We're not down on smartphones, it's it's how you use them. I was really amazed and really pleased also to, to see that because it's something that I wouldn't have expected also. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think from the point of view of access to help, I think it's uh, I think it's really it's a great result. I had a great discussion the other day with a colleague about what people do before they reach out for assistance, uh, whether that be to see an occupational psychologist, to see a coach or to see a psychotherapist, maybe how long it takes them before they do something and potentially how much more difficult their challenge is by the time they get professional support or advice. And it strikes me that good quality apps, if made available, could illuminate a challenge for someone, could normalize the the experience they're having, or in uh, association with a therapeutic intervention could really help someone keep going in between sessions if budget is an issue or if access to uh, therapeutic interventions is an issue. You know, so many people have a smartphone. It's, it's the tool of choice in life, in a sense. And so um, putting these good quality apps out there to support this could be a great thing. I think the challenge is about the quality of the apps, for one thing, because not everything um, does what it says it does in the various app stores. But I think it's a really positive message that these tools can be used for positive impact on our mental health, as well as detracting from our well-being. So let's move on to uh, 
as I keep up with my own notes here, <laughs> effectiveness news. I told you there was a lot to Yay. cover in, in this episode. Uh, so thinking about effectiveness in the workplace, uh, I've been invited to speak at an event next month, uh, Tuesday, the 8th of October. I'm going to be chairing a panel on business growth, people and technology at Dropbox Connect. So as the name would indicate, it's a, it's a conference organized by Dropbox, uh, where it's all about um, effectiveness in the workplace. We've got a range of uh, keynote speakers, a range of panels. I'm going to be chairing one of those panels. And we're going to be looking at, uh, and I'm really excited by you know the, the, the focus on this. It's the reason that I uh, agreed to participate. It's about business growth, balancing that with people and a focus on individuals at work. So maybe uh, small businesses growing rapidly, you know, think of your typical startup. At what point does growth get balanced with, say, well-being or sustainability? But also for much larger organizations, how do they become a little bit more responsive, a little bit more nimble um, in their use of systems, processes, and balancing that with the well-being and the effectiveness of people. So even from that just brief introduction, you can see we've got a lot to cover. Um, I did say to Dropbox I would I would share this. Um, I'll, I'll put a link to the event in the show notes. And, and I'm doing this in part because it is a free event in central London. And there's a great lineup of... Um, of content and speakers. Uh, it's the 8th of October, Dropbox Connect. I would be very interested in, um, in hearing how it goes and especially your panel, because it sounds like a really, um, well, I would say interesting discussion, but it's more than that. I think especially looking at uh, looking at this in um, at the early stages of business growth, I think it can do so mm. much for the culture that then develops. It can have such a big effect. And you rarely hear about any of that when you're seeing um, stories of growth or advice around growth. There's no, that's something that, um, yeah, it doesn't get picked up on often. It, you know, maybe, maybe there is um, potentially too much of a focus on that and less of a balance. It, you know, very much depends on the organization, but we have a real mix of very large and quite small organizations coming to this and a mix on the panels mm, as great. well. So we'll get perspectives from very well-known businesses, very established businesses, those that have grown very quickly and those that are smaller, but on that growth trajectory. As I say, possibly ad nauseum on this podcast, there is no one size fits all solution. And so getting different perspectives, I think will be really useful. And we might hear some good stories that attendees can can take away and reflect on. But I'll certainly report back um, on the podcast. Who knows, I might be able to wrangle someone from the day to be interviewed and, and to come right. on. It depends, if, depends on my wrangling <laughs> skills on the day. <laughs> Um, speaking of people at work, two stories that I thought I would share that are, again, um, uh, taking two different sides of the, the same topic, flexible working. Um, people management shared a summary of some research carried out by the TUC here in the UK about the availability of flexible working arrangements. And um, the the results were a little bit, well, I, I won't say surprising. They were a bit bit sad. Um, they, they said that 58% of the workers that they surveyed in the UK believed that flexible working was unavailable in their current role. And this rose to two thirds or 68% for those in what the TUC described as, inverted commas, working class roles in sectors like retail and social care. 
Um, 30% of all flexible working requests were rejected. Now, of course, based on the the legislation here in the UK, employers can, of course, turn down requests if they can offer a legitimate business reason for doing so. And obviously, the TUC is uh, the Trades Union Congress. It's representing unions. It's representing the employee's perspective on this. But the head of public policy at the CIPD, Ben Wilmot, said in this article, the results come as new, no surprise, given the uptake for flexible working had flatlined in the last decade, owing to multiple difficulties encountered inside businesses. So it sounds like there are business pressures. I think what we've seen from previous discussions on this topic, there's also the the capability at team leader or management level to respond appropriately to to requests for flexibility. Um, And there are logistical limits as to what can be done in different contexts, a different organizational context, different roles, different team arrangements. It does sound like it's it's quite high, though, um, the number of these uh, requests that are being being rejected. And of course, we know from research that flexible working arrangements can help people stay in employment and can help organizations retain key talent, potentially when the employee's um, personal life circumstances mean that a flexible arrangement is between them and remaining in that role. Mm. I think oh, there's so much stuff in here. Um, I think also I'd be very interested in knowing what the conversations are like, uh, what the support even before requesting the flexible work is like, as in mm-hmm. why, w- yeah, what's going on there? Why is it that so many requests are being turned down? And also like, is there a real understanding of what the options are um, uh, mm-hmm. from from all uh, points of view? And yeah, and uh, I find it very, very interesting. <laughs> It's a huge topic, as we both know. Flexible working is an umbrella term, and it can mean very different things in different environments. My mind is going back to a a project where I helped one of my clients introduce flexible working arrangements. And to my mind, they did that in a very joined up way. My my. My part was to uh, run some training sessions for managers and employees to brief them on both what's possible and um, how to approach that and how to remain productive when working flexibly, but also to demonstrate the boundaries within the organization. So what had been set about what's appropriate and for managers to help them make the adjustment moving from I can see my whole team if I look up from my desk, through to actually a number of the team are working from home or working from different places and what that requires of people. And I think at a minimum, organizations need to consider both sides of that equation. What what can be done and what support do we need to give to employees and what do we need to give to managers to help them navigate this? Because through their eyes, for many managers, this is an added complexity that they just don't want to deal with. Yeah. Flip side of that is a story from one of my preferred suppliers, Shake Shack, um, which you can tell just by looking at me. Uh, Shake Shack, uh, they're, they're at, they are a, a hamburger emporium for those of you not familiar with the brand. Um, they have um, introduced a trial of four day work weeks for their managers and they're trialing it in Las Vegas. So this isn't a European story, it's a US story. And what they're doing is trialing this so that managers can fulfill a 40 
our work week across four days. So more like a compressed hours uh, approach. And obviously in this context, it's not about working from home, but it is about giving flexibility to the which hours across which days are being worked. And, and they want to address the pressure they're seeing, which is talent management of managers and above in their context, in the restaurant uh, sector. So I'll be interested to see how that trial works out, if it's something they continue and if it's something that they um, uh, introduce outside of the US. Because, you know, we have been given feedback before that we tend to focus on office environments when we discuss um, all of these, these issues. So here we've got the very demanding restaurant uh, context. So I'll be really interested to see how the business evaluates that and what their decision is and um, what Shake Shack decide to do Globally, yeah, it's very unusual for a, a, a restaurant, a food company, uh, to to be looking at this. You don't hear much about it. You, you generally hear the yes. opposite, don't you? About incredibly long hours and demanding working arrangements, and um, a lot of zero-hour contract arrangements. So, I, I think this is uh, maybe light at the end of the tunnel. And finally, we turn to productivity news. Um, I'm firmly pulling my geek boots on at this point. Uh, something that we're going to look at in a future episode is this whole topic of task management. How do we decide what to do and when, and how do we keep track of the work we have to do? We're touching a little bit on it today, but it's the difference between a scribbled note on a post-it note, or is it using an app to help us with that? And We've got two new apps um, on the horizon. Microsoft have just launched their to-do app, which is part of uh, Office 365. That's, as far as I'm aware, heavily based on the app that they acquired uh, last year, I think, called Wonderlist, which was extremely popular. Very simple, very accessible way of noting the things you want to do and attaching some priorities to them. They've got apps and a uh, browser-based version, online version. And of course, Apple have announced that their update to iOS is going to be available on September 19th. And um, that will come with their revised Reminders app. And I've touched on that before. It looks like quite an update to a very, very simple list of tasks that you might want to do. So ahead of a review of these, I've started to use the Reminders app myself. Um, I'm, I'm being cautious here. I'm using it just for my personal life tasks. All the work-based stuff still sits in my app of choice to do it, so I don't disrupt or forget anything really important. But I've been, uh, I've been using the Reminders app for a little while now, and I'll continue that with the update to it so I can compare and contrast that to others. And I think when we look at uh, task management, it's going to be a part of why is it difficult to manage your tasks and understand you know, really get your arms around the work, uh, depending on which app you use. So we'll we'll have a look at those in a future episode. I love that you have different apps for personal and work. Um, that's I think that's one way that uh, sounds sounds good if you want to separate your 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 brain <laughs> almost. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of goes against a lot of received wisdom about having all of yeah. your to dos in one place. Um, and this is very much you know me search here, but I've found it's quite nice to be able to open an app that will just show me things that I've decided I want to do in my personal life, and not go through a list of projects that remind me of 
you know, people I work for um, or, or tricky projects, you know, in the evening. So that, that's yeah. quite nice. It does require me to look in two places. But hey, let's give it a few weeks <laughs> see and, and see, see what happens. Maybe I'll go back and everything will be in one. But in order to have a look at these with, with a bit more than a cursory glance, I've decided to use one and, and see what it's like. So let's turn to the main topic of this episode, analog in a digital world. And I think what we found out so far is it's not necessarily a digital world. Lots and lots of people still have that preference around pen and paper or you know similar arrangements. And Pilar, you went out to the internet, you went out to Twitter to ask people what they did. And it was really nice to see the, the, the sort of interest in this topic. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah. And very interestingly, we've even had, I feel like a radio host now, we've even had replies um, coming in up to an hour ago. <laughs> so, okay. So I'm really excited. So yeah, I thought it'd be interesting just to, to, to get a feel and just broaden the conversation beyond what we preferred and then the research, of course. So the question was, uh, we're preparing an episode for my pocket psych on analog versus digital. Would love to add your thoughts. So the question was, when you take notes or when you write, do you prefer pen and paper or e-paper or typing away or other medium? And we had, I think um, it's really interesting because they were, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go through them. There's, 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 um, there's enough there's not that many, so we can go through all of them. Very interesting. So um, uh, Chris Coladonato said, I use both, reading articles, books, etc., and taking notes. It's either bullet journal or Apple Pencil with the Good Notes app. Writing blog posts, etc., mm -hmm. pick away on my computer or iPad keyboard. Um, because oh, she, she had something else earlier. Ah, and then she said, uh, I also often draft out thoughts for presentations or even emails using Otter, which is the dictation app, and then tweaking the text transcript on my iPad. So, um, yeah, I, for that, I just got some clarification because I use the dictation uh, the little microphone mm. in the keyboard quite often. But um, she says, this is just for drafting. So for drafting, she she goes on to Otter. So, uh, she says she uses it when, I'm, when she's drafting emails or responses where I'm not sure what I want to say and do it when I'm on the treadmill or out for a walk. Wow. Yeah. So, and then we've got uh, Scott Dawson um, who said, <laughs> short notes, Apple notes, Creative writing, Google Drive, sketch notes. He uses Procreate on the iPad. Anything else? Pencil and paper. Uh, and I asked him pencil rather than pen, and he said, "Yes, I fell in love with mechanical pencils in college." So that's really interesting because that that's something that gets reflected a lot when people write about this topic. There's both dividing what I'm doing by the medium I use and for different tasks, I, I use these different media, but also there's an emotional attachment. Like I like, I like it. I'm, I'm much more comfortable doing this or I enjoy doing it this way. And that moves away from the whole productivity thing and efficiency thing to actually have an emotional connection with the way that I'm doing this work. Yeah. I mean, he uses, I fell in love. So that's really strong mm. emotional attachment. I think it's, it's I fell in love in college too, but it wasn't with <laughs> pencils. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, listeners. <laughs> That'll be another episode. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so uh, Teresa Douglas uh, said, I'm mostly a typer these days. I often have to move paragraphs around or go back and fill in. So digital is less annoying. And uh, Lisette uh, Sutherland said, pen and paper. I tried a bunch of virtual tools and found myself surrounded by sticky notes. I finally gave up and bought the full focus planner. I can't explain why it works for me. So I asked her because I know that she travels a lot. Uh, and so I asked her, it's a big, heavy book. And she said, well, it's not light. That's for sure. 750 grams or so. It's completely impractical for travel, except that I can easily organize my to-dos without Wi-Fi. I hate that it's what works. I mean, I'm a tool junkie. It makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like I had a look into that, having read uh, her tweets, and so it's a it, it is a, it's a paper based planner that's very organized for you. So it's not simply a notebook. It's it's around goal setting and tasks and planning quarters and months and years. Very very structured. But yeah, it is. It's quite big too. So those are the ones, Richard, that came a few days ago, but there's a few more, so I'll just go through them. Um, so Laura Sly said, pen and paper, partly habit and ease, partly because I think I recall stuff better when I can visualize my own writing on a page. That's very interesting. Mm. Um, Nikki Wilson said, old school, pen and paper all the way for me, but then the challenge of storing notes. Still looking for an effective way to scan to type. Using a stylus on a tablet still hasn't enticed me. And finally, uh, Circle Indigo, I think this is Gary, notebook and pen, have tried tablet but still prefer old school. Easier to find stuff, better recall, and who doesn't love a moleskin notebook? I buy them even when I don't need one. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> ah, it's the attachment to it. It's yeah. the emotional connection again and, and liking the look and feel of our tools as well as you know, does it work for me or am I frustrated with it? Do I find it easy? So, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of uh, human element to this, isn't there? It's, it's personal feelings, personal reflections, uh, personal preferences. And I like the whole identity thing that Lisette brings up. Hang on, this is not me. So in the same way that she could be saying, well, I'm really a tool junkie, so that's all I use. Or someone could say, well, I really, um, whatever, I'm, I'm, some other attachment to paper and saying, oh, well, that's that's me. That's what I use. And she's really struggling with that. Hang on. <laughs> mm, mm. I can identify with that as well. I'm, I'm a very digital uh, focused person. But, uh, you know, in the last while, I found it very useful to open a notebook and just establish some priorities for a day. Um, uh, on top of all of the things that could be done, what really must or should be done today and, you know, refer back to that regularly. And also for things like um, gratitude, uh, wins for the day, uh, lessons learned, th those kinds of things are, are in a notebook um, for me for the last few months. And that really is a departure for me. I've just been almost 100% digital up till now, but it, it's working for me. So I, I guess I could be a little bit more flexible with my identity. Can I ask you why you changed? Um, I spoke during the summer, a feeling of being overwhelmed with possibilities, uh, overwhelmed with things that needed to be done. And uh, also just I, I read a book, which we'll, we'll come to, called The Bullet Journal, because a number of my clients were mentioning it. And this happens regularly to me, so I sort of have to 
catch up with what, what people are reading when they, uh, not because I think it's fantastic or it's, it's terrible, but because I want to be able to understand where they're coming from. And I thought, well, I'll experiment with this. And the experiment has stuck. And I'm definitely not um, following all of the guidelines in the book or anything like that, but I'm definitely getting some of the benefits that the book outlines, such as, you know, first thing in the morning, some planning time, some clarity time, and then some reflection time at the end of the day. Uh, I, I do that with the notebook. And that's really nice before I look at email, before I look at a big to-do list, um, before I look at anything really. It's, you know, get into the notebook, make a few notes about intentions for the day. And that's that sets a bit of a theme. And on the couple of days that I haven't done that, it's felt very strange. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a pretty well entrenched habit for me now. We'll, we'll come back to that that book, but you know, day to day, it, I don't live out of a notebook because so many things are either I'm interdependent with other people, so we need to have a shared version of something. So you know, you and I share information on Trello, for example. Um, I, I write long form stuff using a, an a, an app called Bear Notes. Um, I'm I don't generally do that with pen and paper and then type it up. Um, and I find it it it. You know, it's it's useful to sometimes be very creative on my iPad using my my Apple Pencil if I need to try and create some kind of a diagram and I'm on the move, I'll do that rather than having lots of paper. But it's kind of task-based. You know, what am I trying to do? Um, I'll, I'll use different tools for that. And I'm trying to keep it to a minimum as well. Because as we've seen in reviewing this, there are so many different tools out there. You could have a bag full. <laughs> and a, a desktop for every time you looked at it. What, what about you? What, what's your preferred way of doing it? So I mix my iPhone, my computer, and my Remarkable tablet. So I really like the, I really like e-paper. Uh, my Kindle, the same. On my books, I, I read on my Kindle, but not on the shiny one, on a, the one which has e-paper, the paper white, which has a light that shines on it also. So mm -hmm. uh, for, but really when I got the remarkable, uh, remarkable tablet about a year ago now, a lot of stuff changed. So I started to write more. I started to draw also. Um, of mm. course, I could have drawn with in pen and paper before, but it was the, the, the ease with which now I can share those drawings that's made it very motivating for me. Uh, and the fact yeah. that actually on a, on a tablet, on an e-paper tablet, you can edit the, the, the drawings in a way that you can't on paper. So mm. I, I still make notes just for ease because, of course, the problem with e-paper, even though it's supposed to be a notebook, it's like a notebook. It doesn't really connect to the internet uh, or anything. It just is like a notebook. <laughs> However, the problem is, of course, it's got a battery uh, and the battery life is not great. So I still use pen and paper, odd notebooks. Um, well, they're not even notebooks. They're just bits of paper, bits of post-it things for the odd conversation on the phone or meeting. Um, mm -hmm. And then notes or reminders and stuff, they're always digital uh, because I need access to them all the time. So yeah, I really, I really like, I, I prefer writing by hand. I always have. Yeah. 
It, it's interesting. We're, we're, we're all coming to these kinds of decisions, taking in multiple factors. It's yeah. not a sort of uh, inflexible, I will always use a pen. It, it really depends. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll summarize this. But I thought it might be useful if we had a few, uh, not just our opinion or the opinion of our listeners, which is always welcome. So thank you to everyone who responded on Twitter. It's really nice to get that context. But this is something that uh, scientists have looked at. And um, we are identified a few stories, a few papers that we thought it, it might be good to share. Following on from the preferences um, uh, example, there was an um, article in the Times Higher Education Supplement uh, that's from a couple of years ago, 2017, pen and paper beats computers for retaining knowledge. However, this was students' um, perceptions or preferences rather than something experimental. So they, they reported preferring to use paper and pen as opposed to digital media um, for writing and reading. Um, and they, this was undergraduates and postgraduates in Italy, UK, Slovakia, Bulgaria, a whole range of, of countries across Europe, Russia and China. Um, and so the preferences came out quite strongly. Now, what this doesn't tell us is, is that a successful strategy? Um, and how much of that is because of, you know, attachment to the, the physical, to the flexibility of doing that. Maybe there are rules about using technology in certain university environments in certain countries, but there's a very strong preference came out. Now, we know how quickly technology moves. So this was two years ago. Maybe things have changed a little bit, but that's what students, postgrads and, and undergrads have been saying about the pen and paper versus digital. There's a study that we both came across uh, from 2014, which is about, you know, writing with pen and paper um, versus using um, laptops, typing. Um, and this is quoted all yeah. over the place. It's uh, Muller and Oppenheimer's paper from 2014. And I think it made the press everywhere because it's got a fantastic title. The pen is mightier than the keyboard. <laughs> Advantages of longhand over laptop note taking. Uh, any any thoughts on this one before we dive into it? Because the, you cannot but trip over this paper if you go looking at the at the topic. Yes, it is everywhere, and I always find it very disappointing when I find an article and I go, "Oh, great, another point of view," and then it refers to this to this one piece of research. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it always makes me wonder what. Of course, um, I also find it interesting because that setting is quite removed from how I use what I use writing for now. Mm -hmm. um, I I do I still do take notes by longhand, and especially when I've read a book. And and I would agree with what they found that I tend to remember more. Well, this is a little bit maybe maybe it's unscientific. I do think I tend to remember more if I've written it down by hand. Um, to be honest, I don't think I type to learn or retain information. So maybe I've never done it. Yeah, and, and, and I think potentially this is a generational thing because when I'm teaching, um, I see people haul out the laptop mm. and just type, you know, uh, while I'm talking um, more than I've ever seen before. 
And the the uh, Muller and Oppenheimer um, paper, the, uh, just quote from that, we show that whereas taking more notes can be beneficial, laptop note takers' tendency to transcribe lectures verbatim rather than processing information and reframing it in their own words is detrimental to learning. And this is where the line comes out and is reported in the press that laptops uh, don't help you learn and it's better to write in pen and paper. And, you know, there's a, there's a few um, good quality elements in the, in this paper. It's, uh, it's, it's multiple studies and they've looked at it in different ways, but we need to remember the ecological validity. We need to remember that if, if there's something that's maybe artificially created for you to engage in, in a study, we have to ask if that is a realistic reflection of the, the real world and remember the motivational factors involved in being a student. You're there to learn to be able to use that information to write essays, do assignments and, and pass exams. Could that be different to the kind of note taking someone might do in the workplace when they're attending lots and lots of meetings? You know, we need, we need to think about that as well. Um, we'll put a link to the paper because the full paper is available online and, and it would be good to hear what, what listeners think about this. Um, as I say, there's multiple studies in there. I think it's quite a, um, well-written paper it's kind of it's accessible and it makes sense to the to the average uh the average reader but but actually i i found a, a follow-up study uh, you know people talk about the the replication uh, crisis uh, in psychology um someone replicated the muller and oppenheimer uh 2014 studies um and found some quite different results so there was this uh, same study. They, they, they got participants to look at a TED video and take notes, either longhand or on a laptop. And then after 30 minutes, they were given a test with both factual questions and conceptual questions. So the factual questions were about what was or wasn't said. And the conceptual questions were about, you know, general understanding of the concept being or concepts being relayed. Now, originally, uh, the 2014 study showed Longhand note-taking people performed better on the conceptual questions than those who had used a laptop. So the implication was to understand what's being said to us, it's better to write it down because we use our own words. We maybe, we can't keep up with the speed of speech, so maybe we are already processing it as we're writing it down, we're making sense of it, whereas typing can be done a lot faster, and so the tendency might be to just repeat what is being said, what, what we hear, and it's kind of going, and I, I, I'd be shocked by, by neuroscientists for saying this, but it's kind of going in our ear and out through our fingers, mm -hmm. you know? It, 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 we're replicating what we hear without many, much meaning being attached to that. Now, what they, they did find in 2014, there's no difference in performance between these two conditions when it was about factual questions about what had been covered. Um, the laptop notes were longer. There were more words in them. Um, and, and so that, that's what came to the conclusion um, in the original study, that it was better to do the longhand note-taking. They were more paraphrased and they had fewer verbatim statements in them, which they said was more beneficial for knowledge retention. Now, in this replication, the researchers Moorhead, Dunlosky and Rawson 
found that the longhand note-taking condition performed better on factual questions, which is different. Mm. And there was no difference between the two conditions on conceptual questions. So if you write, write it down in this study, you remembered facts better, you know, what was, what was not said. But actually, it made no difference in your understanding of the concept being relayed. And they included, interestingly, and, and for the betterment of science, a no-note-taking group, um, and these people who didn't take any notes did not perform worse than the participants in any of the other note-taking groups. Interesting. Yes, it's such a huge reminder of context uh, and uh, mm -hmm. what is it that we're doing, what are the notes for, what, what are the facts, the whole, the presentation of the material. I wonder, you know, you have this mm -hmm. TED Talk which are designed to really engage you and keep your attention and make you think, what would it be like if that had been delivered by someone else, the same material, but in a different way? Will Would maybe some people who didn't take notes have fallen asleep? <laughs> I think it's fascinating, all the stuff that goes in there. Uh, absolutely. And remembering who the, of course, the, the sample is in in research like this um and you know are you motivated to succeed are you is it really clear what's being done are you maybe adjusting your own behavior did someone come in with preferences already and it was a good fit for their preferences in terms of note-taking mm. I, i think my main takeaway from looking at these just these two papers is that the press has a tendency to jump on research and then present the results in potentially an overly simplistic and very, very uh, firm way. It's better to use a pen and paper when in fact the original was, was all about a, an academic setting. And, and even then the replication has not demonstrated the very firm findings from that. Interestingly, I haven't seen this replication reported <laughs> as widely as the original paper, which is again, as communicators of science know, is, is one of the big challenges. It's out there. Um, so, it, it, you know, two different perspectives already raising important points we'll return to. Why are you doing it? How are you doing it? What's going to be done with the information? How, how long do you need to recall the information for? Um, th there was a, a, an interesting uh, article you uh, pulled out about better learning through handwriting where a study had been done looking at the, the benefits of writing things down for, for later recall. Uh, that was from 2011. Mm. Um, writing by hand strengthens the learning process. So uh, another perspective about learning rather than than um, an understanding rather than just pure recall. Mm -hmm. And we haven't, um, none of them mention the, or I don't know if you want to go into this already, but the element of distraction as in the medium you're using, how much that helps you to concentrate on the task. Um, that yeah. it, 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 it'd be interesting to see. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's huge, Richard. <laughs> it, it is big. And in, in true uh, form, we've opened up a massive uh, can of worms here. But this is an excellent point, which is, you know, if you're writing by hand on paper, that paper is the tool. If you're interacting with a computer, whether that be a tablet or a laptop or a desktop, there's the opportunity for that tool to distract you 
with notifications or your own temptation to try and do something at the same time, multitask, keep an eye on something, in inverted commas. And so that, I think that's a really important point. And because there are so many more of these tools at our disposal, I think an update to the research would, would necessarily need to include that element in it. It's not just preference. It's not just success of recall. It's not just success of understanding the concepts, but also to what extent does the tool itself support or detract from your ability to give attention to this task? Um, can you automatically do lots and lots of typing of what you're hearing while paying attention to something else? Is your performance going to be impacted negatively by something you see on the screen in front of you? That won't happen with a blank notebook. Mm-hmm. Probably. I'm <laughs> saying probably. It, 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 and, you know, it's one of the benefits I'll come back to about this sort of um, bullet journal methodology. Focus. Looking at a page is very, very different to looking at a screen with with lots of information on it. So, you know, an, another perspective on that. We'll we'll share the the uh, links to all of these papers and all of these research summaries. I, you know, the key takeaway though is it 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 depends, right? It really depends on context. It really depends on preference. It really depends on how realistic is uh, the, the the task being done. And we always have to question those sort of contrived research experiments that maybe don't represent what's going on in the real world. I would love to see more studies done on the physiology of the different processes. Um, and because I always think that when I'm using the Remarkable tablet, I am over it. I'm physically, like my body is almost over it. And the way I use my hand, I'm really closing that space around me. Whereas if I'm, for example, on a computer, I'm much more open uh, and it's uh, my my peripheral vision has a lot more stuff around it also, and um, I did look for this and I came, but I came across some. I wasn't sure <laughs> of, the, of the research because she was selling her services. Um, but I would love to do to know that what different uh, parts of the brain are engaged, or just our relationship with with how we're using the different medium, whether that also affects our feeling of comfort, creativity, efficiency, etc. Comfort's important, mm. right? And h- how long can you adopt a certain posture while taking notes on paper versus a digital tool? And how long before, you know, you get cramp in your hand writing or you get pain in your arms from typing? You know, this isn't just a 15-minute window we're talking yeah. about. It's your working life. So that that could have an impact as well. You, we both found a, a an interesting, on a related note, um, topic reported in the BPS Research Digest about telling the truth <laughs> or not telling the truth, which I thought would be a good fit for this as well. Would you want to tell us a little bit about Well, that? it's basically uh, they looked at whether people lied more when they had uh, written uh, a note or whether they were emailing or typing, and they found that people tend to lie more when they are behind, I suppose, a screen some kind of screen Mm. when it's Mm. and it made me think Richard that because I was also thinking that uh, writing and handwriting is a very personal thing and if I'm giving Mm -hmm. you a note a handwritten note it's got me plastered all over it (laughs) just because of the handwriting (laughs) and if you receive a text note from me which looks just like every other text note that uh, you receive, then I become more anonymous. And uh, yeah, so this made complete sense to me. 
Absolutely, and the implications for this are, are flagged here, but also I, I, th I thought immediately about feedback in the yes, workplace given actually. via, um, you know, feedback systems or appraisal systems and, and you know, how, some, how honest someone will be, whether it's uh, handwritten or electronic. And so many people now use electronic appraisal systems, feedback systems, you know, thinking 360 and those kinds of things. Um, and it's been a long time since I've seen anyone you know, complete forms by hand or, or give that kind of, that kind of written feedback. So, you know, is this something we can short circuit in ourselves? Is it something that we can say, oh, people do tend to be a bit more dishonest when they write emails. Do I need to be more aware of that myself? Am I being honest? Um, I, I think also there's a piece in here as well about how easy it is to write an email versus the challenge of writing with pen and hmm. paper. You know, when you're in front of email, you've got a lot of email to, to address. You can throw lots of them out, bang, bang, bang. Whereas maybe more thought is given to what's being written, as well as the personal identity mm -hmm. piece. But, but interesting, the lies in your email inbox. See if you can spot any today. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought um, maybe uh, when, we, when we think about all of these things um, in the round, maybe we've confused everyone by, by looking at all of this. But the key considerations for me that jump out from our discussion and from, from looking at these different papers and articles, we need to think about why are we writing? You know, what's the purpose of this? Is it, you know, writing a quick note to ourselves to remind us of something? Is it writing something that other people will see? Are we looking to learn or make sense of something? Are we trying to, to, to keep a record mm -hmm. of something that has happened? You know, these are all very different contexts. And obviously the purpose is going to be different. And do we want to share this with someone? Um, is that a requirement? Are they the minutes from a meeting? Or are they a personal journal? about our own development journey? Or is it a sort of an outpouring of our emotions onto the page? The other things, of course, are cost. I'm sure lots of people have listened to both the, the tweets and our discussion and have thought, well, I'm, I'm not going to buy a tablet. I have perfectly good notebooks and, you know, I don't want to spend that money. Um, and apps cost money sometimes. So we always need to think about the, the cost of these things and the practicalities. Mm. You know, you might have a preference for typing everything, but maybe in some environments that's frowned upon or forbidden, you know, to use a digital device in, in some environments. And I think what we found from feedback from people is that there's no one absolute, I only use this ever. It's about the context. I think it's really interesting to experiment every now and then. Um, well, no, experimenting for experimenting's sake, I don't know, but I'll give you an example. So I mm. read a lot and I love paperbacks and my husband bought a Kindle, one of those uh, Kindle keyboard things, a really monstrous thing, so ugly. Oh yeah. yeah and yeah. he bought that and I was like, oh, and I thought, okay, well, get me a book, buy me a book and I will read a book on it and see. But I th looked at it and I thought it's never going to work. And wow, <laughs> that was it. Other people have tried it and they've gone, you know what, I tried the Kindle for ages and actually I want to go back to paperbacks. And it might be something similar. It's especially now some, I have heard anecdotally, sometimes people say, I wouldn't know how to pick up a pen anymore. Um, and mm. I'm thinking sometimes we've just forgotten about that. So sometimes just going back to something that we used to do might unlock something different, just because we're using a different medium sometimes, not even because there's some huge, amazing advantage to it. So I think playing around a bit more um, and very interesting what you just said now about how other people look at you when you use certain things, especially now with technology, 
um, how someone might look at you. Oh, you're still using pen and paper or, oh, you spend all your time on your phone. Um, I find it, that's, I think we underestimate how much that can guide sometimes our own behavior. Absolutely. What other people think mm. of us. Um, I think if, if we've time, maybe to wrap up with a with a quick note on this this notion of the, the yes, bullet please. journal, which pulls together <laughs> all of these things, and I'm going to follow this up with a with a blog post as well to elaborate a little bit more. But first of all, um, it is a massive phenomenon. <laughs> Let me put it that way. This is not just an idea. It's it's, it's really big. It's come from one guy's uh, attempts to sort of corral his priorities and suit his own preferences. Um, and make it work for him just using a notebook when lots of other things wouldn't work for him. So a lot of the background and a lot of the instructions can be found at bulletjournal.com. There is inevitably a book that can be purchased. I have, uh, I've done that and um, read the whole, well, I listened to it via Audible. And I've practiced some of these things. I think what might surprise people is the the emphasis on writing and writing and writing. So writing what you think is going to be needed over the next few months, then writing on another page what this month looks like, and then writing on multiple other pages what the days are going to look like. So there's this repetition of writing down that could be viewed as, uh, you know, um, uh, just far too much time wasting. You know, it's written down once, why do you need to keep writing it down? And the emphasis here is on constant iteration to identify what's really important. And it's one of the points that really resonated with me, this mindful application of your attention to one tool, pen and paper, and before you write something down, because it takes time, is to say, actually, do I want to do this? Am I going to do this? Am I going to go there? you know, on my list. And it replaces, in that regard, it replaces a calendar because you're writing down key events uh, that have happened and that will happen. It replaces uh, potentially a, a task management app because you're writing down the things you're going to do. And it can replace a reflective journal because you also write down what happened and what you thought about those things. And and the, the name bullet journal comes from the fact that it's all done in very short bullets. There's none of this dear diary, but this happened, I F this, I think this, I'm going to check this out. That, that kind of thing. So there is lots of repetition in terms of writing, but I, I did find that it does have that um, effect. You look at it and say, I, am I going to do this? Is that important enough for me to write it down? Is this something that's going to happen automatically? Um, it, it is um, not a barrier to using digital tools. And I, you know, personally, I, I couldn't replace my digital calendar because there's so many things that other people need to see. There are so many small appointments in there. But what I've been doing is identifying the priorities for a day. And it might be one line that says, I am doing coach on campus at that client today. And that's when I look back, I can see that that's the main priority. Not every single appointment I have during the day. Um, as we, I think everyone knows, but you really have to slow down when you write. And that for me has been a benefit. Before I put pen to paper, I, ne I need to formulate what it is I'm going to say. It's less stream of consciousness and more considered, which, which is a nice, a nice change. Mm. Um, Sorry. Well, you, I was going to, that, that is exactly the, your last point about slowing down was what was coming through strongest as you were talking about it, mm. that it gives you a focus for slowing down. So it says, okay, why am I slowing down? And I think maybe, uh, yeah, one of the thing, reasons why it might be uh, being picked up so much is because of that, 
because it is mm. licensed to slow down. So I think it's wonderful. I, I think that's the thing that, that's been the biggest effect for me, you know, that I've really felt and really noticed has been that slowing down, that pause, that time in the morning and the evening. Now, not everyone takes this approach and there's a massive risk of this turning into a huge project and a lot of people seem to follow that and it's an art journal and and less of a productivity tool and that's fine if you haven't got so many things to do and you just want to cover it in beautiful designs and color it in and everything that's absolutely fine but you know there is the risk that if you look to those as being the exemplars you'll feel I'm not good at this and there is no good or bad at this it's it needs to work for you in your context so I wouldn't I wouldn't go on on Instagram or, or Pinterest looking for inspiration. You'll just feel bad about your own artistic <laughs> abilities as a result. There is the ability though to express yourself and be creative because you're you're not filling in the blanks in a predetermined notebook. You're creating the structure yourself. And that's something that I think could work for a lot of people because they can then put in things that reflect their responsibility their roles, their their life. So for example, I deviate quite a lot from this daily spread idea where it's got a, a determined way of doing it. You, you should include these things, but write it in a way that you like. Whereas what I've done is just noted, you know, the three, four, maybe five priorities for the day that need to get my focus. I keep a log of key things that happen during the day, one line each and maybe what I thought about them. And, and at the end of the day, a bit of reflection and, and gratitude at the bottom of the page. But I also keep a checklist of the things that I want to do for myself, you know, the self-care things I want to make sure that I do each day. And there's another nice element to this bullet journal approach, which is the idea of trackers. If you can imagine a, a, a table that covers you know, written down the month and the habits you want to stick to and you sort of fill in the blanks for each day that you've managed to to keep to that habit. It's a very nice visual representation of what your behavior looks like. Rather than using your memory, mm. you're actually making a note of it, which is, again, a very important point of, of writing things down. And while there are thousands of apps that could help you do this, there's something about the intention of sitting down, mapping it out, and filling it in each day that seems to resonate with with a lot of people. I like uh, the fact that it's so customizable, as in you can, because I think that is some, for me, one of the benefits of pen and paper is that I can use it how I want. Uh, so it's interesting to hear that this journal also has that space within it. it, it exactly. You've got the blank page. Now, for, for some, some of us, that can be a bit daunting, but it also means you can experiment. Yeah. It, there's no test <laughs> here. So you can just iterate and do it in different ways and maybe keep the personal separate from the professional. Um, it, it's completely up to you. But I think the main principles that are useful to adhere to are time alone with a piece of paper and a pen, uh, thinking about the future so you don't get ambushed by future responsibilities or commitments or tasks, constant iteration to make sure that your absolute priorities are making it uh, to the top of your list and are, and are being done. But also, if they're not, the question is, why not? And, and instead of feeling guilty, you're exploring, well, why didn't I do that? Was it I overestimated the time? I underestimated the difficulty? Um, was I, was I, am I procrastinating about this thing? Or as can frequently happen, uh, I don't need to do this anymore. It's no longer relevant because time has passed. So that kind of reflection that doesn't necessarily happen when you're doing it electronically and the task just 
stays on the list. I think because you need to write it down each time if you're going to do it, it gives you that pause for thought. So I, I found it a really interesting experiment out of all the ones I've, I've done over the years. I'm, I'm going to keep doing it. I, I find it quite beneficial to me. That doesn't mean everyone else is going to get the same benefit. But um, I'll, I'll follow this up with a blog post where I elaborate on these points and uh, link to a few of the resources. Bulletjournal.com has a few videos illustrating this. I know this doesn't make for a good podcast <laughs> when I'm trying to describe the page and what I've done with it. So the videos there illustrate very sort of neatly how you can use a, a notebook to achieve these things. Um, it's not either or. It can be used alongside your preferred digital tools. And for many listeners, I know they're working in an interdependent work environment where everyone's using the same digital tools. This isn't instead of. I, I would say this is about getting clarity out of all of those digital tools. What do I need to do? Where do I need to focus? What's really important to me right now? And I think that um, that mindful focus is is probably the biggest benefit from this. So not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, representing <laughs> Bullet Journal or its creator. I'm not suggesting everyone go out and do this. And, you know, there is a bullet journal you can buy, which is, you know, um, not required at all. Uh, it, you just need uh, a notebook that you can, you can bring around with you. I suppose the other, the other bit that everyone who uses pencil or pen and paper will reflect on is it can be lost. So again, we've got smartphones. If there's something hugely meaningful to you or a real, light bulb moment that's in there, maybe take a photo yeah. of it so that just in case you do have that record uh, for, for, future, for future reference. So I think we've come to the end in our digital world <laughs> uh, of our discussion about analog and, and digital. Any, any final thoughts on this, Pilar, before we just wrap up? Just that I thought, oh, this would be a short episode. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Are any of them There's short? There's so much stuff uh, there that I hadn't thought of when we first posed the question. There's so much about, like you said, like comfort, the psychology of it, the practicality of it, our connection to identity, our connection to context, other people. I think it's brilliant. So listeners, if you have any more thoughts, do send them through. And if you've tried any of these things for the first time and experimented with them, let us know how it's working for you. We'd love to, to hear from you. And again, we're coming up to the 50th episode. So do let us know if you're putting any of this into practice and it's working out for you and we can um, drop it into that. If you, if you contact us uh, via Twitter, use the hashtag MPP50 and that way we'll find it. We'll look out for it. Hope this has been useful. That is episode 47. And as ever, thank you for listening.